A reading from the message, Ephesians 4, 17 to 25. And so I insist, and God backs me up on this, that there be no going along with the crowd, the empty-headed, mindless crowd. They've refused for so long to deal with God that they've lost touch not only with God, but with reality itself. They can't think straight anymore. Feeling no pain, they let themselves go in sexual obsession, addicted to every sort of perversion. But that's no life for you. You learned Christ. My assumption is that you have paid careful attention to him, been well instructed in the truth, precisely as we have it in Jesus. Since then, we do not have the excuse of ignorance. Everything, and I do mean everything, connected with that old way of life has to go. It's rotten through and through. Get rid of it. And then take on an entirely new way of life, a God-fashioned life, a life renewed from the inside and working itself into your conduct as God accurately reproduces his character in you. What this adds up to then is this. No more lies, no more pretense. Tell your neighbor the truth. In Christ's body, we're all connected to each other. After all, when you lie to others, you end up lying to yourself. Wow. Thank you, Pastor Andrew. He read, I don't know if you noticed that, the message version, which is a... uh, uh, paraphrase. Thank you. I'm trying to get that word out. It's a paraphrase of the scripture. It's the words uh, modernized into our language. And I asked him to read that version because I wanted you to catch the passion of what we're about to read. And I want you to understand something. Today, what we're talking about may actually be offensive for some of you. If it's offensive, that's okay. It was so offensive 2,000 years ago that for these kinds of words, they beat Paul up and threw him in prison. So he wasn't worried about his words coming off as offensive. And so if some of the content is a little offensive, I I just want you to know you're in good company. For 2,000 years, people have been offended by this. Um, I was thinking this morning, some of you maybe have different backgrounds. And some of you might be here today because someone convinced you that, you know, there'd be good-looking folks here, and they were right, so good job. And uh, you came to check out the show. Some of you might have promised lunch. You should always promise lunch when you invite someone to church, and so that's a good thing to do. (laughs) I don't know how they got you here today, but maybe you're here today, and you'd say, you know, I'm still kind of checking this thing out, and I haven't made some decisions yet, and there's some things, some questions that I have. And this passage that we're going to walk through today is really going to be helpful for you because it's probably going to address some of the primary concerns that you've had. And it's this idea that what does a Christian look like? What does a follower of Christ look like? How can I tell? And then for some of us, maybe we've been on this journey for a long time and we've been walking with Jesus for a long time. And for some of us, these words might cut a little bit as we process, man, I know the goal but I feel like I'm short of the goal sometimes. And how do I process that? And hopefully it will challenge us into that. If you're just jumping in, we've been walking through the book of Ephesians and we've been talking about this incredible letter that Paul writes to encourage us, to encourage us. He writes to a church that he planted, that he began, that has sprouted into home after home after home after home, that has sprung up uh, and he writes from prison. He's actually been imprisoned for standing up for his faith. And now he's writing to churches who are not in prison saying, I want you guys to be encouraged. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm in prison and you're out of prison, you write to me to encourage me. 
Don't expect a letter from me to encourage you. But here's Paul writing a letter to encourage all of us. So for the first three chapters, he's been just talking about this amazing truth of who God is and who we are because of who God is and what God did. And now for the second half of the book, he's gonna talk a little bit about encouraging us on what do we do now? How does our behavior change now because of what God's done? And so we're gonna walk into this. And this morning, I just entitled this, uh, this message, Authentic. Authentic. How do you know the real deal? How do you know the real deal? You know, I was thinking about when I first came to a relationship with Jesus. There was a guy in my life named Brian who was my guy. And I've talked about Brian from time to time. But Brian was my guy. He was the guy who showed me the ropes. He was the guy who, when I first went to church, I was like, this is weird. Why is there karaoke before some guy gets up and talks? Like, where's the bouncing ball over the words so that I know, like, I have no concept of what is happening here. This is weird. Everyone who's in here seems to know what's going on, and I don't know what's going on. And Brian was the guy who looked back at me and said, hey, come and sit with me. Come and sit with me. Now, what was cool about Brian is he sat in the row of all the good-looking girls. And so I was promoted from the back of the room, knucklehead, to the middle of the room in like the popular kid row, just by knowing Brian, right, which was awesome. So Brian was my guy. He showed me the ropes. As a matter of fact, Brian showed me the ropes so much that the first time I went to summer camp, and, and this is crazy, but I'm, I'm sitting at a table eating lunch at summer camp. I'm about 14 maybe. And uh, I'm just, you know, doing what guys do. I'm eating, you know, grabbing as much food as I can get. And Brian looks over at me and goes, dude, if you eat like that, girls will never sit with you. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> He's like, you have to learn how to eat in public, bro. This is who Brian was, right? He's like, take a bite then stop, <laughs> look around, have conversation. I'm like, really? I was like, the table I grew up in the Puerto Rican home, if you left food on your plate long enough, someone would reach over and snag it from you. I was used to eating like those dogs that don't have good training, you know, just rah, 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 and you reach over and I slap your hand. Like, that's what I did. That's how I learned. You know, I didn't get this figure from nothing. But, uh, and here's Brian saying, dude, you can't like, no, that is not going to work out for you. I want you to be at my table, but that, and can you imagine and here, here's Brian he was my guy the first time I ever went forward in the altar and responded he came up with me put a hand on my shoulder prayed with me the first time that the Holy Spirit showed up in my life Brian was there it was awesome when I had questions about my faith Brian was my guy so it was pretty devastating about two years later I'm a junior uh, in high school and I'm I'm having uh, uh having lunch, I think, with my, my youth pastor. And he asked me, he said, he said, Mike, who's the only person in life that will never let you down? I was like, um, I know the answer is always Jesus <laughs> when we're having this kind of conversation. So I guess I'm going to say Jesus, but you know, I got a short list. And he goes, he goes, yeah, it's Jesus. He goes, what about me? He's my youth pastor. And I go, I guess you could, would let me down. Sure. You're just a, a dude. He goes, good. He goes, who's the only person in your life that you can model your life after. I'm like, okay, I got it down. It's Jesus, right? He goes, yeah. I said, why are we having this conversation? He goes, well, because I talked with Brian today. And Brian came and talked to me and just said, you know what? I've been playing Christian for a while. I don't want to do it anymore. I'm not coming back. And I remember thinking, no, that's not true. That can't be true. Brian was with me in the front. Brian gave me table manners. Like a lot of my life and my journey with Jesus is connected to Brian. 
And I remember just being angry. I was like, you're a liar. So I called Brian. This is pre-cell phone. I have to go home, dial. <laughs> no answer, no response. I leave a message on an answering machine, if you remember what those were. Nothing. I see him at school. He just walks by me, doesn't even look at me. And that was the end. Brian just walked out of my life, and he walked out of a relationship with you. And I remember thinking, I wasn't sure if anybody was really a Christian after that. I wasn't sure if anybody really believed. I wasn't sure if we were all just kind of playing a game. Now, I knew that I had experienced some things. I knew that the Spirit had showed up. I knew that God had changed my heart and my life. I knew that I was different. But for the first time, I really experienced this question. Has anybody really changed? Has anybody really made new? Is anybody the real deal? You know, in ancient Greece, they would hold these great theatrical events. They were plays in large amphitheaters. And the actors would wear these huge masks to portray the characters that they were. And inside of those masks, there would be like a cone that would amplify their voice. And these characters, these actors would, would come out on the stage and their voices would be amplified. Those actors were called hypocrites. And that's where we get the word hypocrite from. Someone who wears a mask and projects a voice that's not their own. I can tell you in all my years of doing this ministry thing, many of them in the youth ministry world, um, uh, uh, planting a church across the, the whole journey of this, the thing that I run into time and time again when I'm talking to people who have questions about faith in Jesus, the thing I run into time and time again is this question of then why are so many people, if, if they say what you say is true, why do so many people not live that way? Because I've known too many, there's the thing that happens all the time. I've known too many people who have said, but done this time and time again. So here's Paul writing a letter forward through history to churches that are springing up in homes, to people who are getting together, sitting in circles and telling stories about their life being changed because of what Jesus has done. And he's writing to encourage them saying, guys, don't miss this part. Don't miss this piece. You are not who you were. You are who you now have become in Jesus. And it's different and it should look different and it should be different, and it should stand out to the world, and it should make a difference. And so I'm going to teach a little bit differently uh, than I've taught. I was thinking about it. In uh, 11 months that I've been here now, I've never preached a seven-point message before. And I was, I was nervous that you guys wouldn't want to sit through seven points. Then I realized, I got AC in here. It's like 91 degrees. We're comfortable, so let's just do this. But I'm going to teach a little bit um, on this idea of what it means from this passage to be authentic. If you're a note taker, you may want to take some notes on this. You can always catch it on the podcast if you want to. But, uh, but I just want to walk through a little bit uh, what it means to be authentic and as a follower of Jesus. I was thinking about Paul. In uh, Philippians chapter 3, he talks about his credentials before and after knowing Jesus. He talks about how before he knew Jesus, he had an identity. He was a, I'm going to use the word, a super Jew. He was like the most Jewish of the Jews. His bloodlines were flawless. His education was flawless. His 
religious devoutness was as good as any Jew could hope for. As a matter of fact, he was so Jewish that he was the one that they assigned to go stomp out the Christians who were springing up trying to, uh, in their minds, uh, twist and manipulate their faith. He was the guardian of Jewishness. That's who he was. That was his identity. He could identify himself. He listed all of his credentials. He even said that he was the most committed, that he was the most faithful giver, that he had great moral accomplishments. But then he meets Jesus. And in Philippians 3.8, he says, I consider all of that which I once considered of note as rubbish compared to the surpassing grace, gracious greatness of knowing Christ. Now, I was thinking about that picture, that our identity, the things that, that, that don't look like Jesus, but we still get really excited about, for Paul to say that that's all rubbish, that's a pretty good picture. Think about this. Next time you're taking the garbage out, if you ever take the garbage out, you take the garbage out, you're getting ready to throw it in the can, and you look back, you say, this is all of the things that I used to be proud of before Jesus that's what Paul says. I consider that all like garbage. None of that matters compared to the incredible greatness of what's new in me because of Jesus. Now, is that identity crushing? No, because eventually he's going to say all of those things become redeemed because of what Christ did. But apart from Christ, they're not important to him. That's crazy. That's a crazy picture. Here's why that is so crazy. Because none of those things could cause God to love you more or less. You can't increase the amount of love that God has for you. They don't add to that. They can't get you more forgiven. Ever feel like I want to be more forgiven? I messed up again. I need to be more forgiven. I need to, I need to suffer more so I can be more forgiven. They're not going to get you more forgiven. You're completely forgiven. You can't get more forgiven. There's not more of that in there. You can't be made newer than totally new. Christ came in to your life, and now you're totally new. You can't get newer than totally new. But Pastor Mike, you don't understand. I need to be made new. Yeah, you were. Congratulations. You can't be newer. You're new. That's who you are. It's pretty funny. There's this tension between the world and the scripture when it comes to who we are. And the world wants us to believe that what you do determines who you are. What you do determines who you are. Your actions, your behavior, that determines who you are. I'll know, I mean, I, I, from movies to media to whatever, what you do determines who you are. But the scripture doesn't say that at all. The scripture says who you are determines what you do. It starts with who you are. Who you are. And who you are is a child of Christ. Who you are is God's masterpiece. And that determines what you do. So we're going to walk through this for just a little while. I promise I'll move quickly. It's going to be like a little bit of an information dump, but hopefully it will just jump out uh, to you and help you get through that. I'm going to read through now this passage a little bit in the NIV and uh, we'll walk through. I'm in Ephesians chapter four. If you're following along, uh, I think it will pop up on the screen as we go. But verse 15 says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. Some keys to authenticity. Number one, 
First one, truth. Truth is one of the keys to authenticity. I love this. Paul says, hey, we're the guys that speak the truth. Do you want to know what it's like to be a follower of Jesus? Do you want to understand the weight of following Jesus? We're the guys, the gals, the people who speak the truth. Now, this is uh, tense for some of us because speaking the truth is often costly. We live in a time where it is safer to say, well, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me, and let's just all get along and value each other's truth. It sounds great, except for that's a lie. That's no longer truth. Paul is in prison for saying the truth. He is in jail for telling people the truth, for having the courage to say, hey, you can't say that you live for Jesus and behave this way. That disconnects. So I have to tell you the truth. You can't say that, you know, there's many paths and then get into the presence of the word of God when Jesus says, I'm the only path and say we're both true. Woo, got a little tense in here. But we're the group that says the truth. That's what Paul's trying to say. He's saying these churches are sprouting up. These people of God are coming together and we're the group that look each other in the eye and have the courage, have the guts, have the intestinal fortitude to say, here is the truth. Jesus is the truth. Paul says, you have to speak truth. I remember, it doesn't seem like it was that long ago that it was considered moral to tell people the truth. It was not that long ago. I'm not that old. And I can remember that there was pressure to make sure I told people the truth. When did that pressure go away? When did the expectation of honesty go away? When did the expectation be, I accept your truth instead of I tell you the truth? I don't know when that happened. Now, this isn't a totally new strategy to attack the truth. Paul was facing the same thing everywhere he went. He said, I got to tell you the truth. And they're like, we hate your truth. Uh, rocks. Right? We hate your truth. Hold on to this pole while we whip your back. We hate your truth. Get down in this hole. We'll put a grate on it. You're in prison. It's not a new thing for people to hate the truth. But we're the people that tell the truth. You cannot be authentic. You cannot say you stand for something and be comfortable living in the lie. All right, I know that hurts, but we're gonna keep on going through. You know, it's funny, I, we see truth and, and it's like we knock people for telling the truth. I was thinking about whistleblowers and, and we all have these opinions about whistleblowers and some of them are horrible people probably, I don't know, but I just know that somehow we just put this incredible tension and we make it this really big deal if anyone tells the truth. It's like we're not allowed to tell the truth anymore. I don't know what happened to the truth. I miss the truth. The truth was awesome. <laughs> Paul says, instead, we speak the truth. Second thing about being authentic and authenticity. This qualifies the first part. I'll relieve it a little bit of the pressure. Oh, we have to do it in love, though. Some of you are getting amped up. You're like, yes, I can finally go online to that message board and be like, you're all dumb. 
here's the truth, right? You were all excited for that moment. Let me, let me relieve some of that pressure. We're the group that tells the truth, but we do it a specific way. We speak the truth in love. Do you want to know if you're speaking the truth in love? Here's your test. Is what you say demeaning, dehumanizing, devaluing to somebody God loves? You missed it. You missed it. You missed it. We just talked last week, every single human on earth is God's masterpiece created and designed by him for his pleasure, for his good work. So if the way you speak the truth cuts the legs out from someone else and is humiliating and demeaning and demoralizing and dehumanizing to them, you have missed it. You failed. We speak the truth in love. We honor what God's created, who's God's created, and we in love say, hey, you're incredibly valuable. You're so valuable that this is what God has to say about you. And we speak the truth in love. If you swing and miss at that, here's, here's why so many people are timid with the truth because they, they're afraid of the offense. But I'll tell you what, when I was running away from Jesus, someone telling me the truth in love was the greatest thing anyone ever did for me. I don't hate the people who told me the truth. I don't hate them for that. Now, if they just said, you know, you're a bleepity bleep bleep bleep, I'd be like, well, okay, that might be true, but, you know, let's fight. But when they said, when they said, you know, hey, there's a, you don't have to be that. You don't have to carry that. I thought, wow. I was an angry person. And when someone said, man, you don't have to be, I mean, you could give that to God. That hurt. I didn't get, I get mad at them for that. I was mad already. Couldn't get madder. Paul says, we're the team, we're the group, you're the people who speak the truth in love. I was at a conference recently, and one of the, one of the speakers there, um, a guy named John Acuff, he's a famous Christian author, he was talking, he has a very large internet presence, and so he, he's, uh, he's an author, and as an author, he floats in all kinds of different creative areas. Essentially, he had posted something, and someone had written on there, uh, you know, hey, I remember when you used to be a Christian, like all the things you did were more faith-based. And he had just talking about something else, and someone took a shot at him like that. And he said it was incredible because people from, his, from, from Hollywood that he was working with, people from secular backgrounds who didn't believe in Jesus, came to his defense and began to say, you know what? Why is it that the people who say they're Christians are the harshest, most unloving commentators on here? It's true. Paul says, that's not who you are. We're the team that speaks the truth in love. It says, we will in all things, I'm still in verse 15, don't worry, we'll get moving. <laughs> we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. Third thing is this, we reflect the original. We reflect the original. You wanna know if you're authentic, if something's authentic, it's gotta reflect the original. Here's, here's something that it just blows my mind. I used to work in the banking world. By that, I mean, I was like a teller. So I was like the, the first level of the banking world. But we would constantly get these, uh, these reports about counterfeit things that were coming through to keep an eye out for. You know, every week there'd be a report, look, at the, look for these things, these checks or these cash that, you know, photocopy machines, whatever, uh, fake money. And uh, in order to train on how to detect counterfeit money, they wouldn't give us a bunch of counterfeit money. As a matter of fact, what they do is they give you real money. And they'd say, okay, I want you to feel the texture of this. 
I want you to see the little blue and little red lines in there. I want you to see the magnetic thing. I want you to get so comfortable with the original, with the truth, that if something comes through and your hand feels it and the texture isn't right and your eye sees it and the color isn't right, you will stop and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. And there's time after time, counting money fast. Pop, 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 pop. It used to be fast. Pop, 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 pop. And something would feel wrong. Even if it wasn't wrong, it just didn't feel right. I pull it out and look at it. What is that? You become so comfortable with the original that if something is out of line, out of order, you immediately go, ah, that doesn't look right. Paul's saying we grow up into Christ. We reflect the original. We're the team that is so familiar with the original, did you catch that? That what comes out of us looks like that, that we recognize the original when we see it. And when something doesn't look original, we may not be able to articulate it perfectly, but we go, uh, pull that out for a second. I know something, something's off. Something just doesn't seem right. Like it was really close. You were there on Sunday and you were, you know, the, whatever it is, all the things look to line up, but something just, uh, Something's off. What is that? It's I've spent so much time with the original that when something comes out, we're having a conversation and all of a sudden something comes out of you, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, whoa. You're thinking, oh, I wish I could reel that back in. It's like something's off. We're the team that reflects the original. How do we reflect the original? Well, we have to spend time with the original. We have to spend time. We're the team that prays that gets into the word. How do we know what Jesus is like? Well, he's alive, so we spend time with him. How do we know what he's like? Well, he left behind his living word so we can spend time with him. If you say, well, I don't have any time to pray. I don't have any time to be in the Bible. I don't have any time for that. I'm like, well, that doesn't, something's off then. How can you reflect the original and not have any time to spend with him? Some things we know Jesus was like. We know he was loving. We know he saw the best in people. We know he hung out with irreligious people. We know he didn't give more value to people because of their position in society. We know he had a great prayer life. We know he got alone with God. We know he spent time outdoors appreciating God's creation. We know he partied. In fact, he partied so much they asked him about it on times at different times. Why is your master hang out with all these people like this? We know he partied. We know those things about Jesus. If you don't know that, then you haven't spent any time. You're like, wait, Pastor Mike, did you just say I could party? Yes. From the platform, on the podcast. But if you don't know how to party like Jesus, it's not my fault. He had a good time. We know what he was like because we spent time with the original. We reflect the original. Verse 16. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work, work and function. The fourth thing that he says is an attribute of someone who's authentic. It does things. Every ligament does a thing. Every part contributes. I think one of the most amazing things about this transformation that happened in me when I became a follower of Jesus, is I all of a sudden had intrinsic value. Not value that 
that I had to go out and earn. I had value because of who designed me, who created me, who made me. There is a skill set in me that he gave me to do what he wanted me to do. And I didn't have to earn any of that. And it's my privilege to get to go and do that. Paul's saying each and every one of you have value, have worth, have a skill set. You're designed for something. There's a purpose and, and, and every ligament is important. Every muscle group is important. We're part of a body and all of it matters. And you want to test for authenticity. Are you doing something that God designed you to do? What is it? Did he make you to sing? Did he make you to write? Did he make you to love babies? Did he make you to be hospitable? Are you analytical? Can you put together budgets? Can you build things? Can you clean things? Can you grow things? I don't know what it is you do. Can you lead things? Can you pray? What is it? He's designed all of us to be part of the body. And it says, as each part does its work. Each part. Some of you are like, well, I don't really do anything. Well, you don't have permission to not do anything. I'm sorry. I don't have that permission either. I'm just saying. Just saying. I told you it was a little offensive today. Let me hurt your feelings on Paul's behalf. Do something. I don't care what. Whatever God designed you to do, do it. You're valuable. You're designed to do it. You get to do it. That's awesome. Fifth. I'm going to move ahead to verse 19. It says, having lost all sensitivity. Whoo, it's going to get hot here. I'm going to have to turn the air on a little more. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. He says, don't be, I might have got out of context there, but verse 17, he says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Now, Gentiles there means anybody who's not a follower of Jesus or Jewish. Uh, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life that God has because ignorance is in them that is due to the hardening of their hearts. Then it gets to having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Wow, that's heavy. He says, hey, there is a type of futile thinking that you know about and I know about that says, eh, I could probably just do whatever. It'll be all right. I can do whatever I want to do. And Paul says that kind of thinking leads to a loss of sensitivity. What is he talking about? You know that conscience, that thing on the inside that instinctively says that's wrong and that's right? He's saying there's a way that you begin to think that dulls all of your sensitivity to that thing inside of you that says that's right and that's wrong. He's saying, we don't get to be that team. We're not those guys. We're not those people who don't consider what's right and what's wrong. This was harsh. This, this hurts some feelings. He's saying, Sometimes, sometimes we like to just start on a little, uh, it happens gradually, right? We just kind of go, oh, make a little bit of 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 an exception here. And eventually we numb ourselves. Do you know there's a huge market to numb our conscience out there right now? You can make millions helping people numb themselves to the world. 
legally and illegally. What is that? That futile thinking that thinks if I just don't have to feel it, if I don't have to deal with it, if I don't have to live through the consequences. Paul's saying that's not, that's not who we are. That's not who we are. We don't live in the, I just don't want to have to feel it anymore. I just want to cash out. That one hurts. I feel like I really want to go there, but I'm not going to go there too heavy. I just want to say this. Don't train yourself to shut down your conscience. Don't teach yourself how to do it. It'll start with little incremental things. Little incremental things. Let me pick one that's easy and we can all laugh at. Like our taxes. All right? Just a little incremental. Uh, you know, I made a little extra money over here, but no, 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 claim that over here or whatever. It's close enough. I'm sliding the bar around on TurboTax or whatever it is. And if I click this, then this. If I click this, then whoa. Some of you are like, I can't believe it. Some of you are like, well, what's the big deal? I remember a story I heard about this guy who was a, a, a boss of a company, and he was irreligious. And one of his employees came to him and said, I just got to tell you, I've been, for as long as I've been working here, I've been taking advantage of you and the company. I've been taking supplies, just little things here and there. I've been stealing time on my time card, just a little bit here and there. It hasn't been any more than anyone else or probably in my mind, but something's changed in me. I began a relationship with Jesus, and I just feel like I now need to make this right with you. And I don't have a number. I don't know what it is, but I want to come and be honest with you. And if I have to work off the books to make it right, if there's a number I need to pay back, whatever it is I need to do, I want to make it right. The gentleman who shared the story, not a believer, said, I've never experienced someone coming clean and willing to accept the consequences of their actions like that. Maybe there is something to this whole Jesus thing. See, that's the group we are. We're the group that says, we're not going to numb our conscience. We're going to do what's right. We're not going to go down the slippery slope of, well, that's probably okay. We'll just make it right. I lost some of you there. That's okay. I'll bring you back here. <laughs> Where am I at? I'm just going on, going and going. Verse 20. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and you were taught in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires and to be, here it is, made new in the attitudes of your mind. We're the renewed mind folks. We're the think differently folks. We're the ones that the next key is we renew our minds, verse 23. You know, Paul says this over and over again in Romans chapter 12, verse two, he talks about to be not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Here's what I was thinking about. You guys remember the story of the prodigal son? The prodigal son decides he wants his inheritance from his father. So he goes to his father, says, hey, you're not dying fast enough. Can I have my inheritance now? Takes his inheritance and he goes off, wastes it. Then a famine comes and he finds himself without. He ends up serving the people of the land and he's sleeping with the pigs, praying for food that he can't get because the pigs eat better than him. And then something happens. 
It says, then he came to his senses. Something happens in his mind. He looks at the circumstances and the consequences of his choices, and he says, I don't have to think. I don't have to believe this way. It says he came to his senses, and he realized that even at the lowest position in his father's house, it was better than his circumstance right now. He renewed his mind. And if you remember the story, the father, when he sees him off, he runs and he throws his arms around him and he says something. He says, my son who was lost, some translations say dead, is alive again. Paul's saying there's a type of thinking that is death. There's a type of thinking that is lost. There's a way of believing about the world and about God that's totally lost. And we're the group that's renewed our minds. We've changed the way we think about who God is and who Jesus is and what God has done for us. That's us. We're the renewed mind group. We don't let ourselves wander into thinking that is contrary to God. We catch ourselves. That's why all over the place, Jesus is like, guard your heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Don't let this thing, your thinker, your inside peace, get all convoluted. Now, there's always tension, this idea that, you know, well, if you sinned in your mind, you sinned already. Jesus says, you know, something to that effect in the Beatitudes. But here's the thing. Having a thought is not sin. Holding that thought, living in that thought, letting that thought change your reality, that's when it becomes sin. Here's how I know that. Jesus is tempted by the devil. He's led out into the wilderness. And the devil says, hey, throw yourself off the temple. Because, you know, the scripture says that he's commanded his angels concerning you. You won't, you won't fall and get hurt. Now, did Jesus have to think about that in order to entertain that conversation? Sure. But he didn't sin. He didn't engage with it. He didn't accept it as part of his reality. He simply discarded that and said, no, that thought, I'm going to capture that thought. I'm not going to live in that thought. I'm going to let that go. I'm going to tell you the truth to combat that thought. Here's the truth. You see, some of us are prisoners of our thought life. We're prisoners. I'm not good enough. I don't have what I should have. God's missed me somehow. We're prisoners of our thought lives. Paul's saying, no, 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 we're the renewed mind, folks. We see and think like Jesus. We put off that old self. We don't live in that reality. We are not prisoners in our own minds. I'm gonna close us here. The last thing, verse 24. Put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully for your neighbors because we're all members of one body. Righteousness and holiness. I'm just going to lump it together. You know, it's funny. We use the word holiness so much that you think we would have a consensus on what holiness means. I mean, there are songs, holiness is what I long for. But if I were to ask all of us in the room to write down a definition of holiness, most of us would have different definitions or just leave it blank. We're like, I don't know, whatever you tell me. You know, I don't know. What does it mean, righteousness and holiness? The Greek words there are roughly translated consistent character that's set apart for God. Consistent character that's set apart for God. Jack Hayford, he, uh, he would talk about holiness as wholeness, being complete, 
being fully connected. Here's the thing about holiness. Holiness is that thing that keeps us from saying, well, this is probably okay because it really doesn't affect this. It keeps us whole and thinking how each piece interacts with the other pieces. <laughs> I was reading uh, a book this last, uh, the last couple weeks I've been reading it. Honestly, it's short, but I keep coming back to it. And there's an illustration there about, about praying for forgiveness and how so often when we are dealing with things in our lives, we want to relieve ourselves from the guilt without addressing the behavior. And the illustration reads like this. Instead of praying for forgiveness, we should just be honest and say, God, I messed up. I plan on messing up the exact same way again. Amen. <laughs> and the point is, it would be better to be an honest mess before God than to just lie. And holiness is that thing that takes us into that place where we want to fragment and be broken and, and mess up and say, I'm not, going, I'm not going to be dishonest before God. I'm going to be whole before God. I have messed up. I am a mess. I don't have it all together. I fail at thinking the way I should think. I fail at, at having the courage to speak the truth. I mess all of these things up. But God, I'm not just me. It's you living in me and through me. Would you be my strength? Would you make me whole? In you, I am made new. So even though that's who I was today, that's not who I'm always going to be. I I am made new. That's what holiness brings us to. That's amazing. That's good news. That's not something I have to be afraid of or run from or scared of. It's actually really, really encouraging. We're not going to be the kind of people who numb ourselves and desensitize ourselves. We want to be whole. I, <laughs> I was reading this idea that, you know, we hold it as a value when we're good at compartmentalizing. If you asked me for a strength test, I'd probably get somewhere on the list to, I'm really good at compartmentalizing. If something has to get done, I could just lay everything else down and then just do this thing. And, and this idea of wholeness and holiness is that we're not designed to be compartmentalizers. That's not a strength. We're designed to be integrated and whole. And when we learn to take our actions, our behaviors, our, what we're doing, and separate it from who we are, we actually disintegrate ourselves. That's what sin does. It disintegrates us. It gets us to go, this behavior is not attached to who I really am, so I'll just do it. This action, and, and, and here's the other angle of that, right? Sin isn't just things that we do that we shouldn't do. It's also not doing the things that we know we're supposed to do. And so we can kind of compartmentalize, I'll just step over this need because I don't want to deal with that. And, and we train ourselves and we become numb to doing the things we know we're supposed to do. The flip side's also true. Here's how I know that's true. Ever been in a situation where you had a tension with someone and they're wrong and you know it, but you know that you have to go and talk to them and make it right and you don't want to do it? You know, the good you're supposed to do? but you don't want to do. And then you go, oh, I'm not going to do it. And then the next time that you're in tension with someone and you know that you need to go to them and make it right, even though they might've been wrong. I'm, I'm letting us off the hook here because sometimes we're wrong, right? But maybe even though they might've been wrong and you know, the next time it's easier to not go to them. You've desensitized a little bit. 
And pretty soon, everyone that ever wrongs you, you just have a conversation of hate in your head towards them. And then you bury them and you compartmentalize dealing with that. And you think, ah, I'm still good with Jesus. Yet you've trained yourself to not do the thing you know you're supposed to do. That's not holiness or wholeness. That's breaking apart yourself, your soul. Paul's like, that's not who we are. We're not desensitized. We're whole. The message version that Andrew read said a life renewed from the inside, working itself into your conduct as God accurately reproduces his character in you. When all this adds up, there's no more lies. There's no more pretense. We can tell the neighbor art the truth. In Christ's body, I love this, we're all connected to each other. So when you lie to someone else, you're just lying to yourself. Paul says, we're designed to be authentic, the real deal. We're the group that looks like Jesus. So we got to feel that. And that's encouraging. That's good news. We're not on our own. It's his strength. He's willing to do it. The hard thing is, are we willing to be honest? Say, this is who we are. This is who we are. I'm not that person. So you know what? I used to blow it all the time. I'm not that person. I still blow it, but I'm not that person. I'm not a person who blows it all the time. In Jesus, I'm whole and I'm new. I like one illustration was the difference between stepping in a puddle and walking through the sewer, <laughs> right? I'm not gonna change my mind and just be okay with walking through the sewer, but from time to time, I might step in a puddle. <laughs> That's who I am now. So I give you a lot of information. We walked through a massive passage. We made it. Here's what I wanna encourage you with. Paul believed this was possible for him who believed. He believed that we could be reflections of Jesus. He believed it so much he was willing to take a beating, go to jail, and ultimately die for it. And then this group of believers started to believe that too. And they believed it so much that they were willing to count the cost and pay whatever it took. And then pretty soon the next group of believers believed it and they were able to believe it so much that they paid the price. And pretty soon the Roman government toppled, the world changed and generation after generation all the way to us know the truth of Jesus. So it's our turn to believe that we can do what Jesus did and live like him that we're all designed by him for a purpose and that we can live this way. And when we do it, the generation behind us gets to experience the benefit of our faith. How cool is that? So be encouraged. You're this link in that chain headed towards eternity of believing that God is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do. I'm so excited to get to go on this journey with you guys. Who knows what God will do? If we just believe, that's pretty cool.